Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. Today's episode is brought to you by the phrase, could it be possible? Which I love because it's an essential question. Could it be possible? I noticed the phrase in an email from today's guest, Dan Austin, and I immediately hit reply and asked, we discussed this? And Dan graciously emailed back and said, of course. So here we have Dan Austin, who is a self-described body surfer, flaneur. Oh my God, you had me at flaneur, Dan. And philanthropist, and the founder and CEO of the 88 Bikes Foundation, which provides a simple and direct way to make a difference for a heroic girl, especially survivors of human trafficking, because buy a girl a bike and she can go anywhere. To date, 9,269 bikes have been endowed since 88 Bikes was started in 2007. Before launching 88 Bikes, Dan pebbled across America in the late 1990s, writing a book and directing a cult classic documentary about his experience called True Fans, about which the Washington Post said, his tale confirms faith in humanity. I can't tell you how much I love this, and I'm so excited to get the chance to speak with you, Dan. So welcome to Camera Ready and Able. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So great to see you again. This is really fun. I know it's been too many years. And um, since this is audio that recording, I just want everyone to know that Dan is sitting in a San Diego on a gorgeous, sunny day with blue skies and incredible life all around him. And I'm sitting in Brooklyn, New York on um, a cold, doesn't quite know whether it wants to rain or snow kind of a day. But here we are to talk about could it be possible, which I love because I'm a card carrying optimist and there's just so much optimism in that phrase. Um, So two things stand out right away from um, studying your website that fit in with the the concept and the, the theme of today's episode. One was you discuss 88 bikes and everything that you do as joy based flip philanthropy. And the other is happiness is a human need. So I want to discuss both of those. You can choose whichever one you want to dive into first, but I love that. Like, I mean, that is part of your signage that is front and center for you and what you do every day. Yeah. It's kind of been the driving core principle of our work with 88 bikes. Um, The idea that you give somebody a bike and it's useful. Sure but it's also really, really fun and it makes them happy. And we kind of believe from the beginning, you know, we launched 15 years ago, that there was something intrinsic about that, some intrinsic value that was often overlooked in the uh, NGO foundation circles, um, that doing something just for somebody's well-being, just to make them happy, just to make them feel worth it, was really, really important and maybe more important than we thought. Those ripple effects just you know, happen throughout their lives. You give somebody a bike and you, you, you see you know, years and years later how they talk about how it was one of those ex- important experiences of their childhood. Um, maybe it helps them move forward in their life, but more than anything, it just makes them happy. And there's, there's something about that that's really powerful. So we've kind of honed into that and focused on joy-based philanthropy as a, as a core uh, mission for our, our work. Hmm. Well, first of all, in your life, when did you figure out that it, whatever it is, is possible? <laughs> Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that it's funny. I mean, going back to the bike analogy, when you when you kind of get in that state of flow, when you get on a bike or you're on a walk or you're you're moving, you're in transit between one point or another, everything becomes possible or more things become possible. The world opens up a little bit. So I think that that probably happened. That realization probably happened. That understanding, that hope, anyway. Uh, happened as the journeys began unfolding in, in life. And I, I think going on journeys 
uh, small and large, whether it was biking across America like we did in the 90s or through Europe or down the Gulf Coast of Mexico, um, or you just across town to get groceries, can have a meaningful impact on your life and can expand those opportunities and those, those ideas a little bit to make things possible, to make it possible. I think that 88 Bikes was a direct, I was total serendipity how it happened, but it was kind of a direct uh, result of of, of those journeys, you know, of kind of getting to that state of like, okay, let's kick back here a little bit and ride or walk and let your mind go a little blank and then see what happens. I love that. So I'm going to back up to catch up the audience who and listeners who have maybe no idea what we're talking about. So one, I just want to, we'll get into the history of 88 bikes and the, the genesis of this, but I also want to go back to the word flaneur, which I found in an old bio of yours, because I have a book about flaneurs. So one, it's layabout, but I, there's a contemporary notion of a flaneur as a stroller, someone who enjoys strolling. And that touches my heart personally, because I stroll everywhere. And I believe in walking meditation. And some of my most creative ideas and um, thinking through situations and problem solving come to me as I'm walking. And I really cherish it. And I, to sound completely out of step with contemporary life, I don't understand why everybody's walking and talking on their phones. Because you could be, you could be walking and thinking. Mm. Right? And this is, to me, such precious time because time is a finite resource. And I don't have that much of it. So I was like... All the time I can spend thinking, whoa, this is awesome. So one, I heart you for this, Dan. But two, walk us through now. So you serendipitously, whether you're strolling on a bike or walking or whatever it is, explain to us the, how 88 Bikes came to be. Well, you know, first of all, Brooklyn, great place to stroll. I mean, I used to live in Brooklyn, as you know, that's when we met years and years ago. And, and um, uh, I miss it. I miss the strollability of a, of, a, of a great city. Where I live now is pretty good, too. But, but, but you know, Brooklyn, New York City is fantastic. Paris, Amsterdam, the great cities of the world. You know, there's just nothing better than that than strolling in those cities. So uh, 88 Bikes, yeah, it began 15 years ago. Total serendipity. I was working on a documentary in Cambodia. My brother is a doctor. He came along to do a rotation at Anchorage Children's Hospital. Uh, we'd already ridden across America. And we thought, well, let's ride across Cambodia this time. Just that at the end of this trip, let's give our bikes away to a couple lucky kids. And uh, we found an orphanage via some friends at National Geographic, 88 kids at the orphanage, which meant, you know, two happy kids, 86 not so happy kids. And that's no, that's no good. So we launched a fundraiser just a few weeks before we left and very quickly got all the money we needed to buy bikes for all the kids. And uh, then flash forward three weeks, January 2007. And what we call the moment of happy took place when all the kids got their bikes and it was just a scene of such unbridled joy that we thought, man, we got to do this again. Um, and so we did. We, uh, we went back to Uganda the next year. We gave 200 bikes to, to kids living in the IDP camp in northern Uganda. Um, a lot of them were for, former child soldiers, former child slaves. Uh, very, very powerful endowment. And we kind of went from there. And, you know, we went back to Peru the next year. And then um, we got some good press and we just, we just took off. It was totally organic. We didn't have any uh, expectations for what it was supposed to be. Uh, we thought it'd be just a once a year kind of deal, and it just it just blew up. And now we we give bikes in 20 countries all over the world. We usually do 500 bikes in a pop, typically buy bikes locally, local vendors. We want to support the local economy. Uh, we hire local labor, local parts, and we uh, we try to operate with as light a touch possible because we want to honor the dignity of the folks we're working with and just give them a little push, a little bike, a bike to help them on their way so that they can proceed on the, in their lives. We don't want to you know there's there's no uh, requirements or anything like that. It's a, it's a, it's a bike, it's theirs and they can do what they want with it. It's so wonderful. And the fact that, you know, it, 15 years later, 
9,269 bikes later, it's joyful. One of the things I want to address here, kind of skipping ahead, is there is a geopolitical component to what you do. And there's a lot of cultural sensitivity required that you just touched upon, right? Having a light touch. So it kind of... It kind of circles back a little bit to the questions you always have to ask yourself on a on an ongoing basis. So if this is going to be possible, what's the best way to move forward? So when did you tap into like how do we shapeshift or adjust? Or here we have all these really great intentions, but intentions, but what do we do in this country that's different than that country? Yeah, I mean you're right. There, there's there's definitely social mores you have to deal with in different countries. There's different um, uh, uh, things you have to be sensitive to. Um, you know, what, one of the things we love giving bikes, uh, giving reasons why we love giving bikes is because they're very, they're, they're empowering. You give someone a bike, especially a woman, or girl in a, in a culture where they may have felt repressed. They may have, um, they, they, they may not have the rights that ever, that, that men have. And uh, you give them that bike, it allows them to dream. It allows them to move. Um, it doesn't solve every problem. It's not a panacea. We don't, we don't, uh, uh pretend that it is. But it helps. It gets them in that space where they can dream when things can be possible. Um, and it, it moves them a little bit forward in their lives. Um, one girl I remember in, in, in India, Pooja, she, uh, her dream is to be a boxer. We always ask the girls what they want to be when they grow up, uh, when we give them the bike. What's your great dream for your life? And she said boxer. But she was having a hard time getting across Kolkata, which is a gigantic city, 13 million people in the metro, um, getting across Kolkata to the gym and then also getting to work and to school. And, and the bike just shrinks the distances and it makes it a lot, much more possible. So um, she was able to pursue that. Um, so... Again, it doesn't solve every problem, but it helps to kind of undo some of these crushing social mores. It helps the women and girls to feel like they're worth it, and, and it helps them to dream a little bit and, and uh, of course, be happy. And, uh, and I think that's a lot. Wait, I want to go back because there's a lot of it that we take for granted, just the ability to actually get to school, yeah, the ability to get to work, how quickly you can go 10 miles on a bicycle versus what yeah. it takes to go 10 miles on your feet. Right, right. The distances just shrink. Even, you know, I mean, these are not like sophisticated bicycles. These are the same bikes that everybody else is riding around. Don't We don't import anything. Same bikes everybody else has, usually one speed or three speeds. So they're not sophisticated bicycles, but even so, you go about three times as fast. Yeah, like you said, if it's 10 miles, that's just a, just a massive distance to walk, especially if you're going there and back in a day. But a bike makes it much more doable. Uh, we did a, a, an endowment back in 2011, I believe, in Mozambique. And the, uh, the kids uh, were, lived in this very remote village, um, eight hours north of Barra. And they uh, had to walk 15 miles to get to like the, the nearest center where the kids get some classes and, and some, some, some instruction from the other NGO working in the area. And it was just impossible, you know, to go 15 miles, 30 miles in a day. But we gave them all bikes. We did 500 bikes to this village and now the kids could get there. Still 15 miles is a long way and those roads are not good. There's no public transportation. There's no buses. There's no taxis. There's nothing like that. So the bikes or walking is it. That's, that's those are your options. And the bikes opened up those uh, those avenues so they could get there a little more often and they could potentially you know move a little closer to their dreams. Again, we don't want to come across as thinking that bikes are going to solve every problem. They're not, but they they help. They help a lot. You know, I love to stretch metaphors. And so as you can think about everything you do with 88 bikes, just applying to everyday life. One of the questions I never thought to think about was how do we shorten the distance? My goals over there, what are tangible steps to shorten the distance? If, if we're identifying that distance may be a roadblock or stumbling block or this major thing that's getting in the way between us achieving dreams or moving forward, or even just sticking with it instead of quitting, 
when did this go from being this nice thing that we do once a year to becoming your life's work? I think about three or four years in, it, it again, we, we, we had no expectations for it. Um, it really drove itself organically. And about three or four years in, we did a big project, Project uh, 4, and uh, we opened it up to a bunch of different countries. Uh, we did our first endowments in India, in Ghana, Nepal. And right after that, Outside Magazine picked us up, and a very nice feature in Outside Magazine, and the CBS Evening News picked us up. And then right after that, that just kind of blew the door open. Because suddenly we were, you know, we were we were in this space where we could uh, really talk globally about what we were doing, and, and we had a much bigger audience to uh, to talk to. And and from that point, we've kind of been on a, a trajectory up. You know, COVID COVID hit us like everybody else because we couldn't really go anywhere, <laughs> but we were still able to do a few endowments in Cambodia, our hub country. We're doing one in India, another hub country where we have fixers and folks on the ground who can do a smaller moment of happy with us without without us having to travel. Uh, so we found some workarounds, and we're doing we're doing fine. Those those bike that bike number should be much higher by now. <laughs> We've, you know, we definitely had to kind of kind of slow down a little. Bit Your dogs are agreeing with you. They are. Yep. Yep. We're, but we're getting into momentum. 2022 and 2023, making up for lost time. Absolutely. No, we're excited. We've got you know 1,200 bikes in the queue ready to go, and we're going to hopefully get those out this spring. We've got. Uh, endowments lined up in India, back in Kolkata. We've got endowments lined up in Cambodia, um, back in Nepal. And uh, yeah, we, you're not going to run out of folks who could use a bike. And our goal is to is to endow as many bikes as possible. Absolutely as many as possible. We don't have a ceiling because there is no ceiling. <laughs> you know, maybe, what, a billion, two billion, five billion? I don't know. There's no ceiling. So we, might, we don't have one. So we want to do as many as possible and, and yet keep the same amount of intimacy. Make sure we talk to every girl individually. She gets a card with the person picture of the person who gave her her bike. Somebody donates 88 bucks, still our price point, even 15 years later. We use that money to buy a bike locally, give it to her, as well as the picture in the postcard with the person who gave her, uh, who donated that money. And then we send a postcard back to that person to, uh, with the card. You, you've seen the cards. I mean, they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. So. so I want to ask you, because you're dreaming big, what do you consider the essential questions you might have to ask yourself in the beginning and the steps to take so you can go from, you know, idea and all that beautiful optimism to actual execution to get it done? For one thing, you have to one thing we always ask our, 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 our partners is, you know, what exactly do you do? And having something very tangible and simple that you do is, I, I think, been, been important to us and has been one of the reasons why we've been able to, to do this for 15 years and we're still growing. Um, we give bikes. Bicycles are simple. We have some tangential projects. We do give uh, small business grants to former bike recipients to help them launch or grow small businesses. We do a dressmaking program for women and girls who want to be seamstresses, bringing over a fashion designer uh, to Cambodia or elsewhere to lead them on a week-long workshop where they design, sew, and model their dream gown. It's super fun. But the main core of it is still is still bicycles, and that's simple. It's simple. It works. It makes sense. It's transparent, and I think that 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 is uh, you know just the simplicity of that has allowed us to, uh, to to build on it. So I think that's the main thing. You know, something simple, something that works, something effective, something you can chart, and something you're passionate about. I love that the fact that it's like you can chart it, but also the focus. That's something that um, I had a gentleman on the podcast named Austin McGee who wrote a book called Find Your Difference. And he talks about that's a core component in a lot of successful businesses of any kind and, and all sorts of successful brands and careers was staying focused, not getting distracted, you know, and, and trying to do too many things or sort of um, diluting what it is, what your mission is. So you're very cl clear on that. We give bikes and when yep. we give bikes, we do it with joy and it makes happy. And I have a feeling like that's a really simple checklist. And so if you're going to stop and go, this doesn't feel happy, maybe we need to rethink this. 
I don't know why I wouldn't feel happy, but I could understand. Right, right. Well, the, exactly. I mean, that's a big part of it. The fact that every single recipient feels that connection. They see the person who gave them the bike. They have that card. And when we followed up with those recipients 10 years later, a lot of times they still have those cards. One woman we, we checked in with, uh, she didn't know we were coming. We just popped into her uh, sewing shop in um, Krache, this province in Cambodia. And right there, the card we gave her, I think three or four years before, was sitting next to her wedding photos in this glass case, the place of honor. So um, we know that that connection makes a lot of sense, and it really elevates the um, the gift, which is why we call it an endowment. We're not just dishing bikes out. We're actually endowing the bike. We want them to feel connected. And then you ask them what they want to be when they grow up and keeping that. And then following up also, also helps as well. So I, it's a big part of it making sure the intimacy is still in place, even as we grow. Um, if we're doing a million bikes a year, fantastic. But the intimacy would never change. One-to-one connection with donors, recipients, and everybody will, will stay exactly the same. I probably won't be able to interact with quite as many folks if we're doing a million bikes a year, but somebody will. And, and we'll have that direct connection, to, you know, no matter how big we get. I want to keep emphasizing this, is how clear you are on your core values and your core mission. There's no 88 bikes without connection and intimacy and joy in giving and delivering happiness. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I appreciate you bringing, you're, you're, you're emphasizing that. It's, it's, it's a really important part. And it's interesting because I, I think that it's, it's a lot more work. You know, every one of those cards that we send out to a donor, you know, we have to get the photo, the information, we log it in on InDesign, we print it, we, we send it in a little, a little envelope to them. So it's, it's in the mail and it's fun. Um, it's a lot of work to do that kind of follow-up on an individual donation donor basis, but that has allowed us to create a very robust donor base that when you go through something like COVID or whatever, those folks are there for you. You know, we don't, we didn't, we never really had to worry because we knew we had a diverse uh, base of folks from every state and 30 countries who had been with us uh, for 10 or 15 years. And that happened because of that unique connection we have. We work to, to maintain with, with the donors and the donors, Appreciated because they see the direct connection they have with the recipients. So it's all a matter of you know those those connections from donor recipient from the work from us being very strong and also very intimate. So again, yeah, no matter how big we get, we're never going to be corporate. You know, um, well, there's anything wrong with being corporate. I don't want to bag on any corporate folks out there, but in in the in the sense that that it would take away the intimacy and the one to one connection, we're never going to do that. What do you wish you knew then that you know now? Uh, at the beginning. Um, that's a good question. Hmm. I think that the, the learning has been so organic. I, it's almost like I, I'm glad I didn't learn some things that I learned. You know, you know what I mean? Because I, I th- I'm thinking back to some of our earlier endowments that we got a little dicey, you know, and I have a, I have a daughter now. I, I, would, I wouldn't do some of these now. I mean, we were in some situations that I would not want to be in now where we maybe were, took some risks that, that I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take now. So I think that in some ways it's, it's kind of like you don't want to know what you know now then because you need that sort of blissful naivete a little bit, that optimism, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that let's just do it-ness. And that, that kind of gets you through that first phase. So then that's very American if we if we're going to admit it, right? That we, some of the best aspects of us that like we're optimistic and and we're doers. And that's really great. Yeah, and it's not that you have all the answers, or you, we, we never thought that. I, I think one thing one thing that really helped is we went into this thing just kind of like not with any sort of um, we we we, we did, we'd never done this before, and we had no expectations for 
you know, doing for whatever we were going to do. We just we just felt like there was a niche that could be exploited here that was not being filled. Um, I'd worked on other projects in Haiti, other within other nonprofits in Haiti and Paraguay and elsewhere, and we'd seen that a lot of times the happiness factor was just not in place. You know, they're taking care of their needs, but just having doing something that carries no strings that just makes someone happy. There's, there's a real niche for that, and so we just kind of riffed on that, you know, and we ran with it, and uh, and it's worked. We need so much more joy everywhere. That's why I love this conversation so much, because I think that we all really do respond well to it. But somewhere along the line that business decided, you know, I mean, I can go off on my tangent here, but you know what I mean? That like clickbait, negative headlines, all sorts of things get us, get our attention. So we get bombarded with that instead of the idea that joint happiness is I with you hundred percent. It's a core human need and we do, we gravitate to it. It's like, you know, in a really wonderful way, there's this energetic pull. Um, do other people come to you now and ask for advice? Like, what would you advise someone who said, Dan, I have this great idea or I see a need. What do I do? What's step one? Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, executing uh, a project on a small scale to kind of a, a pilot like we did, it, you know, just to show proof of concept and that you that this there is a need for this and you can do it. That That's a really good place to start. And, you know, starting on a, in a modest way so you can really nail it, execute it, make it good make it uh make it work and then say okay that worked that was good and then build on there i, th- I think that you know that's that's how we started we don't realize we were starting that way but you know if we if we had you know if there were 888 kids at that orphanage you know that would have been tough that would have been a, hard, a tough lift that first year and I, you know i don't i don't think you know it would have been difficult to reach that but 88 was something was a was a was a reasonable but impactful uh milestone that we could hit and i think that that kind of set the, the foundation, a strong foundation for, for going forward. And, and then also just being very efficient. You know, we never, you know, paid for office space. We've kept, we kept expenses really low and we've done that from the beginning. And uh, if you can kind of create a culture of, of, uh, of efficiency where you're just, you just don't have a lot of overhead, man, that helps a lot, you know, because every, every NGO, every company is going to go through up and down times and if, if you have a culture of efficiency not that we're cheapskates we pay our people well and everything works you know we, we want to make, take care of people but um but still being efficient is, is is important right so we're talking about the, in the could it be possible model answers should be possible and realistic go together right core mission very clear everybody's on board right it's not fuzzy mm-hmm. And we constantly ask ourselves these questions i love it i want to ask too because this is an important part of this because we've talked about the um the results part, the you know, the obvious joy. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but a big part of what you do is fundraising. And so there's a sales component. And for some people, that's really hard. And other people like, I love it. So I just was curious about like how much time is spent, you know, separating people from their money and <laughs> um, spreading the good news of 88 bikes and, and, and that part of it to keep you going. Yeah, no, it's a it's a lot of it. I mean, anybody who runs a nonprofit or a foundation will tell you that uh, you know a big part of your time is spent in development for sure. Uh, the nice thing about what we do <clears throat> is that it largely sells itself. And I, I I don't I'm not like a hard sell kind of person anyway, which is which is uh, it's good that it kind of sells itself because I, I don't know if, if I had to be the hard sell person how well it would work out. Um, so typically we just kind of you know we present what we're doing, we present the impact, we show a track record of doing this for 15 years and where we want to go and people jump on board or they don't and that's fine too um but by and large it's it's not so much fundraising as it is just simply talking to folks uh discussing you know how what we're doing 
uh, can make an impact. And I think going in with humility and going in with a sense that this is just one piece of the puzzle is helps as well. Like I've said a few times, you know, bikes are wonderful, but there's, there's a lot of really uh, wonderful endeavors out there that, that folks can, can, can put their, their resources into. And I, I think that's important as well. I think, I think uh, we want to present every opportunity for people to be generous and to feel like their generosity will make a difference. And because uh, I think people are generous and I think they want to be generous. I think sometimes they just don't know what to do. I also want to point out that in addition to the bicycles, there's a whole set of, you know, getting extra tires, pumps. I mean, you've thought of everything. Like what happens if, you know, your bike breaks down on that mm-hmm. rocky road? Yeah, for sure. The one, one nice thing about our model uh, is that we work with these really strong partners in country. These folks have been working with the women and girls that we work with. They recommend them. They create the list. Okay, these guys could use a bike, their situation, blah, blah, blah. And so because we have these strong partnerships, we can rely upon them to recommend, you know, when a replacement part is needed, when a replacement bike is needed, uh, stuff like that. So we don't have, we, we have these intermediaries that can really do a lot of that heavy lifting because they're the ones who are dealing with working with these populations on a day-to-day basis. You know, a lot of the world is really fractured, especially today as we're recording this, but you're, you know, you're around the world, right? 20 countries, did you say? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What I want to get at in from the, the joyful delivering happiness is is to focus not so much on the things that divide us, but what are some of the things, human aspects that you found are universal? Doesn't matter which country and here these are things that we all share. Well, everybody can remember their first bike, you know. Uh, and that, that's, that's, I just is keeping on the bike theme and, that, and that's a lot of fun. You know, we're, I remember this bike shop owner guy in India, this guy was, you know, not a fun guy, rough, gruff guy. You know, we were working out the deal with them for the bikes. We were doing, uh, I don't know, it wasn't a huge thing. It was like 60 or 70 bikes or something. And did not like this guy. You know, he's just you know, a tough guy to deal with. And then, but the end, at the end of it, you know, I said, well, you run a bike shop. Do you remember your first bike? And bam, just like that, everything changed in this guy. You know, suddenly he was like this little boy. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember my first bike. It was this. And we had this great conversation. And he went from being this guy that I didn't like to this guy that I thought was awesome. And we had this wonderful conversation because he remembered his first bike. And and that memory brought him back to a state of joyfulness, of, of youthfulness. Of uh, it, it kind of shrugged off that that uh, tough veneer that we were that we were dealing with. You know, it was it was really cool. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, things like that, these shared experiences uh, really bind us together across cultures because just about everybody can remember their first bike. In many cases, the bikes we're giving out are the first bikes. And so we're creating that memory, helping to create those memories as well and tying into that kind of global universal uh, experience of of riding your first bike. So that in and of itself, I think, is a really fun and powerful way in which what, what we're doing kind of showcases the similarities between cultures, between people, around the world and can, you know, move a, a gruff old bike shop owner to, uh, to almost tears talking about his first bike, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool thing. And then, of course, there's a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, we're all the same. We all want the same things. And once uh, um, you start digging below the surface a little bit, you realize just how similar everyone is. And, and uh, bikes are a good place to start. Dan, where do people find out more information about 88 Bikes? Uh, 88bikes.org. That's the number 88 and bikes.org is our, our website. Plenty of information there. You can donate there. The links are there. You can say hi to, you know, I have to donate. Uh, like I said, not a hard sell, <laughs> but I know you're great about sending back emails. Boom. Like that. We do what we can. We do what we can. Yeah. yeah. You're wonderful. And I just, I mean, it's not easy. The, most businesses and 
organizations do not last 15 years. You're doing something right and um, delivering a lot of joy and happiness in the process. So I'm really grateful for you, Dan. And thank, thank you, you for spending time here today. Well, it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's especially fun since, you know, we, you go back to the beginning to this thing and, and uh, one of our first donors, and that's, uh, that's a lot of fun too. So um, I love how 88 Bikes connects people, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun chatting. Oh, thank you. And thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. Please visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Thank you.